it's Monday night. You're watching Tisky Sour, and we have four massive stories for you this evening. Our main story, which we'll be talking about for quite a large part of the show, is Priti Patel's brutal plan to begin deporting people to Rwanda from tomorrow. There have been some defeats in the court for those wanting to stop those flights, but we've also seen an eruption of action on the streets. And we're also going to be talking about a court case. Carol Cudwallader has beaten Aaron Banks. Um, he was unsuccessful in suing her for libel. And we've got a, a Keir Starmer polling story. It's not looking great for him. And some truth bombs from an unexpected place about the rail strikes. I'm joined all evening by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? I'm very well. How are you? I'm not so bad. Enjoying the sun. Um, although we do have some pretty serious topics to talk about tonight. This week sees the first big test of the government's brutal plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda if they've arrived in the UK by irregular routes. As we discovered last week, the first ever flight in the controversial program is planned for this Tuesday, so tomorrow. And a decision today in the Court of Appeal means that flight can go ahead. This was the summing up. In any event, we agree with the judge that applications for interim relief in this context must be considered on an individual basis and not a generic basis. Otherwise, the respondent could be prevented from implementing her policy of removal, even in a case in which there is no legal defect in the individual decision-making process at all. Turn to the fundamental point in this case, which turns on how the judge dealt with the balance of convenience. In our judgment, he conducted that balancing exercise properly. He did not err in principle in the approach which he took. He weighed all the relevant factors on each side of the balance. He reached a conclusion which he was reasonably entitled to reach on the material before him. This court cannot therefore interfere with that conclusion. The case that appeal judge was ruling on was one brought by the charities Care for Calais and Detention Action and by the trade union PCS. They had argued the court should put an injunction on deportation flights to Rwanda until the policy was tested next month in a proper judicial review. That attempt has now failed. But that doesn't mean all hope is lost. The Rwanda policy might still be found illegal next month by that judicial review. And there's still one more case going through the court before that flight tomorrow. In the meantime, though, while the government is adamant a flight will take off, it's becoming ever less certain there'll be anyone on it. That's because the refugees have been lodging individual legal challenges. As the Times explains, about 130 migrants had been handed removal directions meaning they were deemed to have arrived in the UK illegally and were due to be put on a one-way flight to the African country, so that's Rwanda. Yesterday morning, only 10 still had documents saying they would be sent to Rwanda. 15 had had their removal directions cancelled over the previous 24 hours, according to Care for Calais, a charity that helps refugees. But the figure fell during the day with the Home Office source saying, we're down to single digits now. I'm apparently down to around eight people still due to be on that flight. So that was the resistance in the courts, and we'll talk a bit more about what could happen tomorrow. On the streets, though, we've also seen massive and impressive displays of solidarity. Protesters have gathered outside of a detention centre at Gatwick Airport, where the flight to Rwanda is set to take off. No Rwanda, no Rwanda! No Rwanda, no Rwanda! No Rwanda, no Rwanda! 
Moving images there, people activists sort of chanting outside an immigration detention centre. You know, it, it looked to me as if that was people inside the detention centre sort of chanting back, no Rwanda. Of course, you know, from the perspective of the government, opposition from lawyers and activists over deportation flights isn't exactly their worst nightmare. And many had speculated this was actually a fight they had actively sought. It's, it's the battle they wanted to be seen to have. But opposition has also come from a quarter Boris Johnson probably wasn't expecting. The Times on Saturday splashed with a story that Prince Charles thought the plan to deport migrants to Rwanda was appalling. A source told The Times he said he was more than disappointed at the policy. He said he thinks the government's whole approach is appalling. It was clear he was not impressed with the government's direction of travel. Yet despite both popular and royal resistance, the government is bullish the scheme will survive. I think it's, I've been very clear that throughout, I think if you go back to the, the speech I, uh, I gave about what we were trying to do right at the beginning when we uh, announced the policy, I always said that it would begin with a lot of teething problems and you would have uh, a lot of uh, legal action against it. But I, and, and, and they would try and delay it. And, you know, uh, that's, in, that's inevitable. But what we're trying to do is stop the business model of criminal gangs who are preying on people, moving them across the channel in unseaworthy vessels, risking their lives and sometimes costing their lives. But it's worse than that. What they're doing is undermining people's confidence in legal migration and people's support for legal migration. We have safe and legal routes for people to come into this country. I've just talked about it, for people who, uh, to come and uh, uh, work in, in agriculture or whatever. We have that. It should not be undermined by criminal gangs who are risking people's lives. And that's what the Rwanda policy is all about. Now, that was an incredibly, unbelievably dishonest statement from Boris Johnson, which can only be intended to sow division and to sow confusion. He's, of course, right. There are some safe and legal routes to the UK. But that's little comfort to the people crossing the channel because they are schemes for which they can't apply. They can't get access to those schemes. The scheme Boris Johnson explicitly referred to in that clip is for seasonal agricultural workers. It has nothing to do with people fleeing war or persecution. And it also only lets people stay here for six months. This is, this is not good. This is not what people are asking for. And when it comes to routes for refugees, there are some official routes. They're from Afghanistan, Hong Kong, and Ukraine. But if you're from anywhere else, you're out of luck. So he's lying, essentially. He's suggesting they could come here legally. They've decided to come across the channel. It's a lie. And then he has the cheek to say it's people risking their lives to find sanctuary who we should blame for undermining popular support for migration, not the person who is proactively lying to the public to try and win himself votes. Ash, I want your, your comments, I suppose, on, on the day's developments, what you think could happen tomorrow and also the politics of all of this. We don't have particularly strong anti-immigration sentiment, but where it is concentrated is amongst high turnout voters, which every party in this country is attempting to court. And why do we find the sentiment amongst those older, more socially conservative voters? Well, it's because there's been a concerted compact between sections of the press and sections of the press, which have only become more powerful over the last 50 years, and politicians to make this an issue. 
A great example is that during the new Labour era, when there was a huge moral panic about asylum seekers, you actually had coordination between the Home Office, being led by David Blunkett at the time, and the Sun, so that the Sun could have an asylum week, splashing on scaremongering stories, only for David Blunkett to come in and write an opinion piece so it could make it look as though new Labour was being tough on the asylum issue. So there has always been a symbiotic relationship between sections of the press and our political class in order to essentially turn um, high turnout voters, tend to be older, more socially conservative, against immigrants in general, right? That's why we've got this phenomena. And so I think that helps us explain the fundamental contradiction of the Rwanda policy. It's not supposed to work. It is not supposed to be a policy which is economically sensible. It's not supposed to be one which can withstand individual appeals by individual asylum seekers. And it's certainly not supposed to do anything like help regularize the means by which asylum seekers come to this country. It is fundamentally intended as a form of spectacle and cruelty. The fact that it's Rwanda also offers an opportunity for sections of the right to claim that any opposition to a racist policy is in itself racist because what are you saying is so wrong with Rwanda? And conservatives love playing that Uno reverse back to you card. And it, it, at, at its heart, everyone recognizes it for what it is, an attempt to punish people for coming to this country and having had the temerity not to be born here. And as you say, Michael, the reason why people are taking irregular routes to this country is because there are not safe and legal routes being made available to them. Now, one way in which you see that is just simply you don't have resettlement schemes for countries the same way you do for Ukraine and smaller portions for Afghanistan. But other ways in which you see it is that things like family reunification have been made much harder. Another thing that's been made harder is for unaccompanied minors, in particular, to reunite with their families, which is why you've had such tragic cases of unaccompanied minors, usually teenage boys, taking their own lives while they're in, you know, frankly, dreadful asylum accommodation, which is made deliberately shit again as a means of discouraging people from coming here. So that's the context. When it comes to uh, the individual case of of the Rwanda, they're, well, they're not technically deportations, they're removals for processing. But the fact that they're so indistinguishable from the cruelty of deportation really tells you what the intention of the policy is. But lots of these cases are going to fail. Lots of these cases are going to fail. Um, lots of the appeals uh, will win in court. And the reason why is that the, the home office's means by saying you don't belong here are actually pretty flimsy. When you look at current legislation, many of the people who are told that they don't have a right to come here, even if they've come here through a regular means, actually do have a legal right to come here. Regular arrival is not a condition of refugee status. It isn't a condition of refugee status really in any country in the world. It's as long as you get here and you claim asylum, the principle of refugee law is that you will have your case considered on its individual merits. So I think you're going to find a lot of cases at appeal being met with, you know, 11th hour, I can't remember what the word is, you know, stays of execution, as it were. But there will be a few people who are uh, who are removed to Rwanda. It will be exceptionally cruel and it is going to ruin people's lives. And I think that's why it's so important for there to be a, an activist culture drawing attention to this issue and not simply resisting the Rwanda removals on a technical basis saying, oh, well, it's actually very expensive. 
No, the only way in which you're going to make any headway, I think, is by making an explicitly moral case, an explicitly humanizing case, because that's the only way in which you chip away at that bedrock of xenophobia, which has been established by decades of anti-immigrant rabble-rousing. We're going to talk about some more of that grassroots activism that took place this weekend in one moment. I suppose just to stick on this Rwanda policy, I mean, Ash, I absolutely agree with you that, you know, it, sh- it shouldn't be technocratic arguments we're making. But I do have to say there is there is one policy argument which is sort of posed as technocratic from the other side, which I find particularly distasteful, which is when politicians, Rachel Johnson did it as well yesterday on LBC, the Prime Minister's sister who also has a radio show, what kind of country do we live in? But anyway, they say, look, this is actually the compassionate policy because what we are doing is we are undermining the incentive for people to use people traffickers to get over the channel and come to Britain. Now, this idea that it is the people traffickers who have agency here, as if they're exploiting these migrants that don't know what they're doing, who are just complete passive victims of these people traffickers, like no one believes it. No one believes it. These are people who really want to come to the UK for very valid reasons. They're fleeing places that they don't want to return to. They want to come to somewhere where they know the language or they might have a family connection. As we know, most of these people who have their claims actually heard, the majority of them do get given refugee status. So these are people with a legitimate reason to come here. They're not coming here by a people trafficker because, you know, they were duped into not knowing there was some legal way that they could have applied on the internet. There is no other way of them getting here. So it's just meaningless and pointless to have this moral stance against people they're not traffickers because trafficking is when you're doing it, you know, forced, people smugglers, whatever, is, you know, that they are the problem is just completely missing the point. And I don't think anyone who says it believes it. And, you know, in case you needed any persuasion that Boris Johnson isn't being, you know, genuine here when he sets out these concerns, I just refer you back to that clip I just showed you where Boris Johnson said, what I really care about is, is the public support for legal migration. I'm actually here with a compassionate position. I don't want people to die in the channel. I don't want people to feel resentful towards migrants. And so here I am, and I'm going to stand here and tell you a load of lies and mislead you in loads of ways and say, we don't need to let in refugees because they could just apply to be seasonal agricultural workers, which, I mean, he doesn't believe. It's pure nonsense. And I just think in matters of life and death, if you have so little respect for the people that you so little respect for the issues, so little respect for, for the people, so little respect for the, the consequences of your policy that you will just say absolutely anything on TV to get to the end of an interview and make people blame desperate people seeking refuge instead of blaming you. There isn't much that's more despicable than that. Let's move to grassroots activism because staying with the topic of immigration, on Saturday, Border Force accompanied by police tried to perform an immigration raid on a block of flats in Peckham but intervention from a large group of activists and local residents stopped them in their path. Those were scenes similar to what we saw in both Dalston and Glasgow recently, where a peaceful demonstration stopped an immigration van in its tracks. Then in developments which have also become familiar, it didn't take long for the police to turn violent. The Met Police, they're seen doing what they seem to do best, manhandling women and kicking people when they're on the ground. 
But just like in Dalston and Glasgow, the protest would ultimately be successful. And the power of the crowd, in the end, gave them no choice but to release the detained man. It was a pretty powerful image of solidarity and of people power, which got all of the usual suspects in a hissy fit. The Mail on Sunday went with this write-up of events. Revealed, left-wing ringleaders of Peckham mob that forced immigration officers to release suspect include ex-NUS vice president dubbed Jeremy Corbyn's biggest fan and Marxist primary school teacher who was one of at least three Labour councillors. Ooh, Marxists, Corbyn fans, all alongside the term the right-wing papers love, ringleaders. In reality, of course, the protests were not organised by ringleaders in advance, which would be pretty difficult given no one knows when any raid will take place. And it seems to be social media which was responsible for the quick response. This is how the action started. That's at most eight activists standing in the way of that van. But then the tweet went viral and was echoed across other platforms. And the day finished like this. Ash, I want your take on this. It's an impressive display of resistance and it seems to be almost becoming a common occurrence now. I feel like at this point, the Home Office are probably going to be quite worried that this keeps happening. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, in the next parliament, Priti Patel announces a new raft of legislation to try and clamp down on, a, on deportation resistance. I thought this was incredibly heartening. And of course, we've seen similar displays of solidarity at Kenmore Street in Glasgow, in Dalston as well recently. And I think one of the reasons why um, these actions are able to snowball in the way that they do is that it's not appealing necessarily to people's ideological positioning. It's not necessarily saying, well, if you believe X, Y, and Z, then this is the thing you have to do as a symbolic protest. No, one of the very simple things that's being appealed to is that these are our neighbors. These are people who live alongside us. Maybe their kids go to the same school as your kids. Maybe they're people who you say hello to every day. They're people who live their lives in the same way that you live yours. And what immigration enforcement is doing in your name as a British citizen is tearing somebody out of the community that nourishes them and that they themselves also nourish. And I think that there's something which is fundamentally and profoundly human about that, which people respond to. And that's why you've got, I think, these really wonderful displays of solidarity and direct resistance where your physical presence is stopping somebody from being taken away to a detention centre where conditions are dreadful. At Yarlswood, you've had multiple instances of detainees going on hunger strike because they've been denied access to their legal representation or healthcare. There's uh, absolutely regular abuses of power by guards at detention centres. And really, it is, it is a condition which is on par with most prisons in this country, right? It really, really is um, dreadful stuff. So I think that this is like totally um, heartening. I think it's also something which can be replicated in lots of places across the country. You don't need a lot of 
technology or really deep roots with a particular activist network in order to make deportation resistance work. You just need a few people at first. You need to be able to sharing videos and photographs. Those things will go viral. People share them around their networks. And before you know it, you've got the ability to free somebody from really quite a dreadful fate. I want to just talk about one more thing on this issue, because there was an interesting tension that came up when I was researching this segment, and it's the role of the border force. It might seem like an odd odd thing to pick up on, but obviously in that clip we just saw, the the activists who you know were absolutely rightly, in my opinion, stopping border force officials doing their job. In that instance, it was unquestionably border force who were you know, playing the role of squashing liberty. But in the first part of this section, you'll remember that it was the trade union representing the border force who were trying to stop the flight to Rwanda. And this was PCS General Secretary Mark Sawatka speaking on Sunday. We have to test the legality of these proposals, but also we need a debate about the morality and lack of humanity that the government is demonstrating. When people are fleeing from Iraq or Iran or Syria or Yemen and they come to this country, they are fleeing death, torture and persecution. We should welcome people to this country and treat them civilly and assess their cases when they are here. The fact that people are taking to small boat crossings in the channel shows how desperate they are. And our members, civil servants, 80% of whom we represent in the border force, don't come to work to be asked to turn those boats back mid-channel, which is what Pretty Propel demanded that they did two months ago. And I remind viewers, we went to court then, we lost two injunctions, but we would have won the case, which is why the Home Office withdrew its policy. And let's remember what Pretty Patel wanted PCS members to do was to turn dinghies back mid-channel at risk of death. That was stopped by a legal process. That was Mark Walker, General Secretary of the PCS. Ash, what do you think here? Is there, is there something interesting going on here? You've got two very, very different sides of border force guards, one speaking through their union and one you know, detaining someone in an immigration van. How, how do we make sense of it? Well, I think this shows a really interesting opportunity for the trade union movement, because there's one way of looking at the job of defending your workers where you go, well, look, we've just got to defend them in whatever job it is that they're assigned to do. So it doesn't matter if you're being asked to turn away migrants in dinghies or rip them out of their community and put them in horrible conditions in a detention center. My job as a trade union leader is just to like make sure that your pensions are quite good and your pay is all right, and then job done. And there's another way of looking at it, which is saying that, hang on, when you ask workers to abuse human beings, to curtail their rights, to do brutal things to people who in every other respect, but just like them, it degrades the worker. It is harmful to the worker. It is psychologically and socially damaging to the worker. The role of the trade union can therefore be, we don't want to do that job. That's not something we want to do. Maybe our uh, PCS members who work for the Home Office or who work for what's now called Immigration Enforcement, maybe they would prefer their job to be helping asylum seekers to settle in this country, to help them access services, uh, English as a second or other language classes, you know, to help their kids find places in schools, to, if the law changed, to allow asylum seekers to work, to help them find work, to help them establish themselves in the community. There's a world where the job that these workers do, rather than being brutalizing, is actually humane and kind and reflects 
the values of generosity and comradeship that should be distinguishing this country. So I think that this shows an interesting opportunity for trade unions. And I wonder if it's something that you could start to see in other sectors. Of course, in things like weapons manufacturing, you've got a huge amount of unionized jobs. I I think that it would be a really wonderful thing if we saw a a revival of uh, something like the Lucas plan or actually through trade union organizing, you've got workers saying, we don't want to do this job anymore. We want our labor power to be used for good and not for destruction. I think it's a really interesting point, really well put. It's the case, obviously, you know, the trade unionists who stopped things being um, exported to, to Pinochet's Chile. Let's go to our next story. Carol Cadwallader made her name investigating the links between Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, and various political campaigns, including Brexit and that of Donald Trump. It's fair to say the impact of her journalism was pretty substantial. Facebook was fined $5 billion for a related data breach. Cambridge Analytica went bust. And Cadwallader became a hero to the pro-EU movement. But unsurprisingly, she also gained many an enemy. One of those was Aaron Banks. Banks is a British businessman who came to public prominence by bankrolling UKIP, and he would go on to become the single biggest financial backer of Brexit, donating a whopping £8 million to the Leave.eu campaign. But the source of that money was never clear, which led Cadwallader to say this in a TED Talk in April 2019. And this man, Aaron Banks, he funded this campaign. And in a completely separate case, he's been referred to our national crime agency, our equivalent of the FBI, because our electoral commission has concluded they don't know where his money came from, or if it was even British. And I'm not even going to go into the lies that Aaron Banks has told about his covert relationship with the Russian government. So that last claim she made, where she talks about banks lying about his covert relationship with the Russian government, that's a reference um, to the 11 meetings that she and fellow journalist Peter Jukes discovered banks, banks had had with Russian officials around the time of the EU referendum. Banks had only previously admitted to four. Also, in 2019, Cadwallader tweeted this, Oh, Aaron, this is too tragic. Nigel Farage's secret funder, Aaron Banks, has sent me a pre-action letter this morning. He's suing me over this TED talk. If you haven't watched it, please do. I say he lied about his contact with Russian government because he did. Now, the TED talk and that tweet led Banks to sue Cadwallader for libel in the high court. It's been a long-running and very expensive case, and the judge has now sided with Cadwallader. Cadwallader won because the judge found that even though she hadn't established that banks had benefited from Russian contacts, her belief that he had done so was reasonable. And it was in the public interest to report her belief. On its reasonableness, she said, based on her investigation, Miss Cadwallader had reasonable grounds to believe that one, Mr. Banks had been offered sweetheart deals by the Russian government in the period running up to the EU referendum, although she had seen no evidence he had entered into any such deals. And two, Mr. Banks' financial affairs and the source of his ability to make the biggest political donation in UK history were opaque. So she's saying it was reasonable for her to believe this, even if she didn't have concrete evidence, it was the case. The public interest defence, which you also have to meet to, to win a case like this, was successful because the judge ruled that the existence of an investigation by the National Crime Agency showed that this was a significant matter of dispute. They too 
So it's a public body we're investigating banks for financial irregularities of around um, £8 million, or concerning his £8 million donation, which in short meant it wasn't only Cadwallader who wanted to know where this money had come from. The judge, it's worth noting, found that this public interest defence would have expired once the NCA, the National Crime Agency, found in 2020 that banks had no case to answer. But the continued existence of the TED Talk video online was no longer causing banks damage. All the damage had been done already. Now, even from that introduction, we tried to make it as simple as possible. These cases are incredibly complex. But Ash, um, I want your your take on this. So, I mean, I haven't always, I have to admit, I haven't always agreed with Carol Cadwallader and this idea that there's a connection between Putin and Russia and Facebook. And I feel like, you know, lots of liberals cling to this idea as kind of an excuse for some of their own failures. But it's also, you know, worth saying they clearly were significant investigations, even if sometimes their significance was overstated, to my mind. And she's taken an enormous amount of flack um, from the right over the past few years. So she will feel vindicated by this result, won't she? As she absolutely should. And one thing that I'll say is that you don't have to think that Carol Cadwallader is a hugely incredible, brilliant journalist in order to think that her work as a journalist should be protected by the law. All right. I don't have to agree with every journalist and everything they write and every analysis that they have of the world and why it works the way that it does in order for me to go, actually, it's really important for them to be able to do their job. And if you look at how this civil case was lodged. It's very clear that it was an attempt to bully and personally target Carol Cadwallader. So Aaron Banks, the normal thing to do if you had been subject to libel because a platform or a publication had been the home of a certain claim. Um, so for instance, let's say, Michael, I libel you right now by um, saying you brutally murdered a giraffe with your bare hands. You could sue Navarra Media for that. That would usually be the thing to do because Navarra Media would be the platform under which the libelous claim was published. But instead, Aaron Banks sued her personally. Now, the reason why that's important is that it means that you don't have an organization which potentially has something like libel insurance, which could cover legal fees and any loss incurred, which would mean that Carl Cadwallader would have to pay out a huge sum of money. And in a case like this, you'd be looking at three quarters of a million to a million pounds. It would be financially utterly ruinous for her. So this was personalized. It was meant to cow her into silence. It really wasn't about anything like what responsibilities do media organizations have in terms of fact-checking or, or, you know, regulating the information they put out. This was very much a personally targeted attempt to bully a journalist into silence. So she absolutely should feel vindicated. And if you can't, as a billionaire, use the British legal system to misuse a libel case. You really can't do it anywhere else. This country has got some of the most generous libel law in favor of the claimant. If you couldn't make it work here, you probably can't make it work anywhere. And also, Michael, just in case you do sue Navarra, I fully retract any claim that you did murder a giraffe with your bare hands. Let's go back to this case. As, as, you, as you made very clear, this was quite personal, but this case isn't just about personalities. The NUJ, so the National Union of Journalists, today welcomed the verdict saying, 
This is the right result, and the NUJ and all journalists will welcome the judgment and feel relieved that Carol has won this case. However, she should never have been put in the position of having to go through such a long and arduous ordeal. No journalist should be targeted and subjected to legal action in this way. This type of lawfare is cynical and targeted, pursued by those with deep pockets in a manner intended to pile as much pressure on an individual as possible. Um, They go on as part of our work campaigning against slaps. The NUJ is calling for the introduction of a clear statutory public interest defence and a series of other measures to ensure that investigative reporting in the public interest is protected from those that seek to undermine journalists and journalism. Now, as I'm sure you can imagine, slaps, you know, doesn't refer to hitting someone around the face or indeed sort of a wild, a wild animal, if that's your inclination. What it is about and what it stands for is strategic lawsuit against public participation. So the idea is that the rich and famous are able to target journalists with the intention of silencing legitimate reporting. Um, We should say at this point, the judge in this case said Banks wasn't an example of this. So she wrote in her judgment, Although Mr. Banks's claim has failed, his attempt to seek vindication through these proceedings was, in my judgment, legitimate. In circumstances where Ms. Cadwallader has no defence of trust and her defence of public interest has succeeded only in part, it is neither fair nor apt to describe this as a slap suit. So there's disagreement about whether or not this particular case falls into that particular category. But the fact remains um, that the nature of Britain's libel laws systematically benefit the wealthy over and above the interest of good journalism. So whatever Bank's motive may have been, Cadwallader could have been on the line for up to a million pounds, as you said. Ash, that's not just damages, that's significantly the legal fees. So it's the lawyers who love these cases. And, you know, it would have had to have taken quite a lot of metal to take this this far. And, you know, I presume some idea that it was maybe someone who was going to pay this. Because, you know, the effect of this is normally these cases don't go to trial. People fold because they're terrified that they don't want to end up, you know, on the line to pay a, a million quid. And it's also really worth noting, sort of I hadn't quite realized this. In, in most cases where like sort of a fine is dished out, a judge will take into account the income of the person who is being fined. That's part of the process. When it comes to libel laws, if you are found guilty of of libel and you have to pay the other person's legal fees, doesn't matter how much you're worth or if it's going to bankrupt you. So if, if they spent a million quid on their lawyer, obviously you don't get to choose what lawyer they, they went with. You don't, there isn't this meeting where you say, well, if I have to pay for your lawyer, can you please get an affordable one? No, if they're rich and famous, they're going to go for a super expensive lawyer. If you then lose, you're going to have to pay for that super expensive lawyer. The whole thing, you know, I say this as a journalist who's sort of trying to brush up on libel law, is quite terrifying, isn't it? kind of feel bad because I'm talking about this as somebody who has successfully sued someone. Um, <laughs> and I think it's, uh, I'm like, ooh. Um, but look, I, I think I think it's important to talk about why the judge was unable to say that this was an example of a slap lawsuit. So Carol Cadwallader didn't have a defense of trust, which I think means that she didn't have the defense of truth, right? Which is that this claim that I have made is factually true and I can prove it. Because in British libel law, the burden of proof is on the defendant, whereas in the States, it's the other way around. The burden of proof is on the claimant to demonstrate that something isn't true. So she didn't have that defense, but there are other defenses in a libel case. And the two which she relied on were public interest. So even if I can't factually prove that my claim is true, it was in the public interest for me to report or repeat my claim. And as a journalist, you've got 
stronger grounds than most people to be able to argue that because you have got the sort of aura of professional legitimacy that accompanies pretty much anything you say. And then the other defense that she relied on, which I think was the more successful one, because the public interest defense was only accepted partially. The other defense was that she had an honestly held belief that any reasonable person could come to. And I think that those are important to have in addition to truth, because there might be things which you cannot factually and, you know, totally in an iron cast way demonstrate are true, but it's good to have defenses and libel cases for those, for those instances. Um, so I believe that that was the nature of Carol Cadwallader's defense. And like I said, the fact that Aaron Banks didn't sue Ted, the platform in which she made the claim, and I don't know, but it wouldn't be uncommon for them to have libel insurance. It does show that the purpose was to drag her through the system. And again, this is a sort of quirk of the British legal system because in libel suits, it is structured to encourage parties to come to a pre-court or an out-of-court settlement. That's why there's not a sort of means testing of finds that it can blossom to any amount and it's trying to encourage people not to go to court in the first place. I forgot that you're an expert on libel law, Ash. I have to say, you were right in your case. She was an idiot. That's not libelous, is it? No, because it doesn't impugn motives. That's definitely my honestly held opinion. It was an idiotic tweet, the relevant one. We won't go into that now. Let's go straight on to our next story before I say something that can get me sued. Actually, before I do that, in case we do get sued, we're running a fundraiser. You might know that already. If you're new to Navara Media, this show and the work we do across the organization, it is all only possible due to our base of supporters. At the moment, we are looking to increase that number to 10,000. We're almost there, but we do need a few more. So please do go to navaramedia.com slash support. The way strikes are covered by Britain's media tends to be sensationalist, ill-informed and aimed to pit workers against each other. But a recent episode of ITV's Loose Women was a rare exception. I've got a family member and, and a close family friend who actually work on, on, on the railways and for transport. And they are really happy in their job. And they are the one person that doesn't want to strike. So whether they want to go to work or not, they still can't go to work because, you know, other drivers and, you know, a high percentage of the other drivers want to strike. So it doesn't actually work for everybody. Not everybody feels an umbrage towards their job. But isn't that the point of a union, though? That it's not about the individual, it's about for the greater good of others. So you have a family member that works on the railway. They may have an issue with their job mm. and that's where the union kicks in. There could be one worker that has an issue and the entire union and those who pay their, their union subs will be behind them. That's the point of a union. They are run off their feet. And of course, they are first port of call for all these angry passengers who are constantly having a go at them and they can't do anything and, about it and it's not... all to save money and yet the big guys at the end are making millions yeah. from it the train prices certainly haven't gone down they've gone massively up so i i get where they're coming from and i do feel sorry for them am i annoyed yes because you're really affecting my travel <laughs> but i'm with them when i was working i had a zero hour contract and i'd done so many days and hours over the years which meant i was entitled to a, a permanent contract but the company didn't want me to know that and it was a union that supported me that was really amazing i suppose what was rare there I mean, what you often don't see sort of when it comes to political reporting is you had some people on the panel who'd actually experienced being exploited by a boss in an ordinary job. And so they understood 
the value of strike action. Now, you know, when you see political commentators on Sky News or the BBC, etc., talking about these strikes and trade unions, I always feel like it seems quite abstract to them and they don't really understand what's going on. It's very, very refreshing to watch a conversation between people who who do. Ash, I want your take on this because, you know, obviously apart from your brilliant GMB um, performance, which we showed on last Friday's show, that's probably the most sort of reasonable and sympathetic take I've seen about these RMT strikes on TV. Why, why do you think it was loose women that is being, I suppose, more honest and open about this than, you know, the more sort of traditional political shows? The thing that I would say from experience is that straight up politics and news programming is aggressively anti-trade union and anti-strike. And when you go into those spaces and you say, hang on, the principle of collective bargaining is really important or workers having the right to withdraw their labor is actually a really fundamental democratic right and should be protected. People look at you like you've just advocated for genocide, you know, genuinely like you've said something which is totally beyond the pale. And that's because you have got strong right-wing bias in news and political programming. And this isn't just coming from me. This is something which has been borne out by pretty much every media study that's ever been done in this country. And you also have, I think, a really powerful class bias as well. So because you've got such a homogenous media class in terms of socioeconomic background, you've got people who overwhelmingly come from middle and upper class backgrounds who disproportionately will have attended private schools and elite universities who don't really have a strong connection to occupations where you've got strong and militant unions. Sure, they'll often be members of the NUJ, but they view that much more as a professional association than they do an active trade union. It means that they don't really have first-hand experience or an ability to recognize the value of trade unions when it comes to collectively bargaining for better pay, for better conditions, for pension provision, for sick pay, or defensive actions of trade unions when, for instance, there's horrendous problems with sexual harassment in the workplace and workers self-organize in order to, uh, you know, instill a bit of accountability in that regard. So I think that's why you don't see it in straightforward political news programming. Um, why it was Loose Women in particular, I couldn't tell you. I, I, I don't know the politics of the individual who made such a clear and cogent and moving defense of the principle of strike action. But I note that the point that she was responding to really betrayed, I think, that lack of I guess, political education when it comes to the purpose of the trade union. And it shows just how pernicious the logic of neoliberalism is, because the woman who was speaking before didn't really understand why an individual desire to go to work that day trumps the collective action of the union, because, you know, we're all people, we should all be able to do what we want. And the idea that you collectively organize for collective betterment just seemed totally alien to her. So I think that not only was the intervention that was made afterwards valuable in its own right. I think that it was such an effective rebuttal, I think, gave it an extra heft and an extra value because it helps us all make those arguments in our day-to-day -day lives. The fact that that's what started the conversation was probably why it was so fruitful because we often talk about this issue as sort of, do they have the right to fight to better their own pay? Which is a reasonable question and they do. But it was reframed because she said, I've got this friend who works on the railways, a family member who works on the railways, who's actually pretty happy with their lot. And then 
actually bring up this much broader discussion, which is you're not just striking for yourself, you're, you're striking for other people in your job. So even if you're completely happy with the conditions and the pay you have, the whole point of a trade union is you might be striking for someone who's not happy with the conditions and the pay they have. And it's very clearly in this, this case of the RMT strike, they're not just striking about pay, which it's worth noting as well. They're not striking really for a pay rise. They're, they're striking to protect their pay because we have 10% inflation, but they're also striking to stop a number of job losses. Now, it goes without saying that not everyone in the RMT is going to lose their job. You know, that's how these things work, but they're all striking to stop redundancies for a few of them. So it is, you know, solidarity in action. I do think that was put very well by the entire Loose Women panel. So kudos there. Let's go to our final story. Boris Johnson has had a dreadful couple of weeks. The Sue Gray report criticised him for a failure of leadership. And then last Monday, 148 of his MPs voted no confidence in him as Conservative leader. Both have made him appear as a sitting duck, ready to be toppled. But a shock poll this weekend gave him cause for hope. That's because despite everything, the public still seemed to prefer him to the only alternative. According to opinion, 28% of the public think Boris Johnson would make the best prime minister. Only 26% think Keir Starmer would. 35% said none of the above. Another polling firm, JL Partners, also released polling results which might concern Keir Starmer. They asked a representative sample of 2,000 people to describe the Labour leader. And this is what they came up with. Boring. (laughs) Bang in the middle. Boring. What might be the consolation to Keir Starmer is you've, you've got honest above that, which is you know reasonably big. Obviously, the bigger the word, the more often it appeared in people's um, responses. I think what they do is you know it's not multiple choice. They get them to sort of type a couple of sentences and then they they pick out words which are used often. So you've got boring, honest. Then you've got untrustworthy, dull, useless, and weak, idiot, trustworthy. But trustworthy is quite a lot smaller than untrustworthy. Posh is rather small. Tosser and Pratter reassuringly small. Cock is tiny, so we can take some consolation in that. There were some more unhelpful headlines for Keir Starmer today. He's being investigated by the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards over late declarations of some football tickets and royalties from a book. One was declared one month late, the other was declared a day late. These are not, it sort of goes without saying, they're not very serious breaches and his spokesman has said this. Keir Starmer takes his declaration responsibilities very seriously and has already apologised for the fact that administrative errors in his office have led to a small number of late declarations. Now, I have every faith that Keir Starmer does take his declarations um, fairly seriously. So I'm not, I'm not particularly concerned about those breaches. Ash, what do you make of the mind map? Not the mind map, the word, word cloud. This is a word cloud, isn't it? Mm, I mean, I'm not sure that you would call it reassuring that Keir Starmer's cock was tiny there. Tiny cock, slightly bigger dick. Slightly bigger dick. I think when it comes to the breaches of reporting expenses and gifts, you're right. These are not, you know, it's not the crime of the century, right? These are really administrative errors. And I don't think it's anything that in itself should be considered reputationally damaging. But the problem for Keir Starmer is that he has made almost the bureaucratic practice of politics his main dividing line between himself and Boris Johnson. So any 
sort of breach of little rules or perhaps ones as we've seen with Beergate, it closes that distance. And even if the breaches themselves aren't really a big deal, the headlines kind of contribute to the sense of, well, politicians are all the same, aren't they? And I think that that's something which weakens Keir Starmer's position because when he finds himself in that place, who wants to fight for him? Nobody, really. The Labour right viewed him as a useful means of marginalising the party's left, and they were correct in that assessment. The commentariat, who have now sort of in one voice said, oh my God, this guy actually isn't particularly forensic or particularly good at politics. They only sort of inflated his ego and his currency amongst the many writers and editors of Punditland, because again, he was a useful tool with which to marginalise the left. And his party grassroots, the rank and file, the membership, they don't want to fight for him because they're like, hang on, buddy, you got elected as leader on the basis of a campaign which turned out to be entirely duplicitous. You've turned your back on multiple pledges. You've distanced yourself from the campaign that you ran on. And yeah, you lied to us. So for me, the key question for Keir Starmer is who believes in you enough to fight for you? Because when you are subject to bad faith smears, as he was with the Jimmy Savile stuff, when he's subject to a kind of choreographed press operation, as with the beer gate, curry gate stuff, and you know, when there's sort of headlines making out that something is worse than it is, as with these breaches, who wants to stick up for him? Nobody, apart from his spokesperson. A word that doesn't appear, which you've just reminded me of, Ash, which I think is the saddest thing about all of this, is forensic. No one said forensic at all, mm. it seems. You know, it's not a particularly commonly used word, but neither really is insipid, is it? So it's, you know, there are some, there <laughs> are mean, some you, fancy words on here, but forensic isn't one of them. But you know what I think that that indicates, and it's something which I think is deeply worrying for us, is that no one actually pays Aisha Hazarika's tweets much attention apart from the shitpost left. <laughs> And that maybe we're the ones keeping her career afloat. Damn. Wow. Well, that's a thought for the day. Ash, it's been a pleasure being joined by you this evening. It's been a pleasure joining you and I will see you. Um, I'm hoping to have a sort of one-on-one libel lesson with you sometime soon because I'm impressed with your expertise and worried for my own future. Thanks to everyone for tuning in to our show tonight. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.